Have you ever considered how it would be to live forever? Or at least more than 100 years? Longevity, eternal youth or even immortality have been a popular topic in religion and culture throughout history. Today, the new hope for advancements in longevity is seen in artificial intelligence. Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast with the mission of sharing insights for global healthcare improvement. While some shows are exclusively dedicated to digital health adoption in various healthcare systems, others are focused on presenting promising technologies in digital health. Today, you will hear about the use of AI in aging research. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and I am very happy to share with you the discussion with Alex Javoronko, the CEO of Insilico Medicine, a Baltimore-based biotech company using next-generation artificial intelligence technologies for drug discovery, biomarker development, and aging research. As you will hear, Alex is a true expert in the field. Since 2012, he published over 130 peer-reviewed research papers and two books, including The Ageless Generation, How Biomedical Advances Will Transform the Global Economy. We talked about the techniques that fall under next-generation artificial intelligence, why is aging research so complex, and how is privacy regulation affecting AI research by limiting access to data that could enable algorithms training. Before we begin, if AI is your topic of interest, do check the discussion with Sally Daub from Analytic, published last year. The link is in the show notes, as well as the links to some of the research articles co-authored by Alex. And if you like the podcast, do leave a rating or a review in iTunes, Teacher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can like Faces of Digital Health on a recently created Facebook page or get in touch via Twitter where you can find me under at ZAJCTJASA. Now back to aging and AI. Alex, uh, how well would you say that you can determine an individual's age based on his looks? Because uh, some researchers suggest that a non-invasive class of visual photographic biomarkers of aging could be the eye corner areas for aging prediction. Uh, so me personally or my algorithm? Let's try both. So when you see a person, what, how... So, so I, I'm, I'm rather good uh, with guessing age... Uh, uh, in uh, the in Europeans and also nowadays in Asians, but uh, I'm not as good with other races. My current uh, guess is uh, four or five years. I mean, absolute error, so that's plus minus. My algorithms, if you work with the macro pictures, so low resolution pictures, they are going to be probably around five years accurate. If you get uh, high resolution pictures, and I get the entire face, I probably can guess your age with about two and a half uh, year mean absolute error. So and the areas around the eyes are uh, most important for um, uh, for the algorithms. If you are doing ultra high resolution uh, imaging and uh, 
I'm looking at the structure of the skin and composition. It might be uh, as accurate as uh, two and a half to, th- two to three years. You said that um, you got better with the Asian race. So is it the same uh, with humans as it is with algorithms that you can actually improve in the prediction uh, with experience? Uh, exactly. So the more you're exposed to uh, different races, the more diversity you capture, the better you get at uh, um, guessing somebody's age uh, within a certain population group. Where do you see the health implications for uh, imaging biomarkers? Uh, some companies are already exploring using um, imaging uh, simulations of aging or of uh, interventions for uh, prediction. So, for example, if you have an obese person or a, a person with diabetes, you could simulate what will happen to them if they don't take better care for them or if they don't manage their disease. What else is there? People currently put a lot of uh, uh, value into the data types they do not understand very well. Uh, Like, for example, genomic data uh, or some other omics that uh, are rather expensive and uh, difficult to obtain. But uh, they, they undervalue, they always undervalue imaging data and actually specifically just pictures of the face. I think that from the picture, you can derive sometimes many more features than uh, from the genome. From the genome, you can get some predispositions. You can definitely get uh, the sex of the person, the race and the population group. But you don't get the uh, phenotype as precisely as you can get from the picture. So when a doctor looks at a person, the doctor can guess, uh, you know, the age, uh, uh, sex, uh, social status, weight, body composition, uh, and maybe some of the diseases. So recent papers suggest that uh, imaging data can be quite uh, diagnostic and could be used to diagnose uh, rare genetic diseases. When doing age prediction, we can uh, do many things. So, for example, when you come to a doctor and the doctor looks at you and uh, sees that you look older than your chronological age, it usually means that the health condition has deteriorated. Or if uh, you live with somebody, so your loved one would be able to very quickly see if you are uh, you know, tired and uh, uh, maybe sick, if you look older than your chronological age or than usual. So I think that prediction of age plays a huge role in, uh, in healthcare. And um, uh, when you're combining multiple data types that go beyond imaging data, like, for example, blood tests uh, and uh, microbiome composition of the hair, composition of the skin, and uh, other data types, it's very important to, well, first try uh, age prediction on uh, multiple data types to see how they correlate to be able to get some interpretation and maybe value of this data. To which extent is it possible to manipulate uh, these predictions with um, dermatology and, you know, interventions for um, uh, anti-aging? So that depends on which kind of predictor you're using. For macro-scale pictures, it's very easy to manipulate your age just by you know, using cosmetics interventions. When you're talking about 
slightly more difficult data types, like, for example, retinal scans, uh, fundus imaging, and uh, high-resolution images of, of the skin, then it's uh, much more difficult to trick uh, the system. Definitely, it's much more difficult to intervene with uh, pharmaceuticals, nutraceuticals, or other kind of anti-aging interventions because they are very often not visible to the human eye and uh, they're not going to be visible to to machine. But on other data types, like for example, blood tests, transcriptomics uh, profiles, microbiome, uh, you might be able to see the effects of those interventions. Age prediction is uh, using AI is a very valuable tool for identifying what can be changed, what should be changed, what features are most important in a, in a specific condition. It's a, it's quite useful to, uh, to, to, to run this as a first kind of frontier. What got you interested in AI and aging? You have two bachelor's degrees and a PhD in physics and mathematics. So the interest from AI makes sense. But why healthcare and aging? I've been interested in AI for my entire life. I mean, machine learning, it's a very exciting field. And uh, I think in the future, we're all going to be experts in this. It's uh, the hottest area of uh, science and technology to get into. It's going to impact all of our lives. But in the context of aging, uh, I've been interested in aging also my entire life. I was interested in uh, how to extend human life uh, using multiple uh, interventions, you know, regenerative medicine, uh, geroprotectors, uh, gene therapy, and looked at many areas of science technology. But then I realized that before we intervene, we need to be able to measure the rate of aging and um, the effectiveness of those interventions. We need to have a panel of aging biomarkers. And the best way to design this panel is to apply AI. And you can do it on multiple levels, from pictures to blood tests to microbiome to transcriptome. Multiple data types can be combined. And um, I started diving very deep into the development of uh, aging biomarkers and uh, the applications of uh, AI. Then we started looking at ways to make uh, AI more interpretable. And it turns out that aging research can contribute to the development of better AI because now we can train deep neural networks to predict age using, for example, simple blood tests uh, with uh, very well understood features. Uh, And then we can uh, see what features contribute most to the accuracy of the prediction. And uh, we can construct causal graphs. We can uh, see how the deep neural networks pick the most important features, how other machine learning techniques pick the most important features. And it really helps us make deep deep neural networks and other machine learning techniques uh, more interpretable. So AI is converging with aging research. And uh, I guess our group was one of the first, or if not the first, to realize that this convergence is going to be very powerful uh, for the development of AI. And we put a lot of resources in uh, building a lot of age prediction uh, algorithms. And also we've switched to uh, generative adversarial networks. So it's kind of a form of AI imagination and started generating synthetic data by generating people of a specific age. So increasing the number of data sets of older people or uh, younger people when uh, uh, the data sets are not properly balanced. 
Before we dive deeper into AI and aging, uh, I wanted to make a brief overview of uh, the AI field because it's a very broad field. I would say that the general perception is that something happens seamlessly uh, with the help of algorithms and computer, but um, a few techniques or um Algorithms that are used are, for example, machine learning, which refers to algorithms that can learn and make predictions on data building models for sample inputs. Then there's deep learning, reinforcement learning, uh, generative adversarial networks, which are structured probabilistic models for generating data and consist of two entities, the generator and the denominator, where the denominator tries to check the authenticity of data produced by the generator and the generator kind of has to try to trick the denominator in a way like trying to uh, learn to lie without getting caught. And then there's transfer learning and meta learning. So it's a really, really a huge, huge field. And uh, meta learning seems to be the most promising in aging uh, research. Why is that? Can you explain a little bit uh, more about what it is and why is it so appropriate for aging research? All of those techniques have been around for a very long time, except for probably generative adversarial networks where you do have uh, the generator and the discriminator, and uh, they compete with each other to uh, come up with new concepts. And that technique was proposed by Ian Goodfellow in 2014 and then took off. And it's one of the most popular techniques uh, nowadays discussed in machine learning conferences. But many of the other concepts in uh, machine learning have been uh, around for decades, including deep learning, Uh, and reinforcement learning is just recently those uh, techniques uh, picked up in popularity just due to the credible, real credible advances in uh, deep learning. Uh, In 2014, algorithms uh, started outperforming humans in uh, image recognition in the ImageNet competition and uh, achieved superhuman accuracy in image recognition. So that really started fueling the hype in AI. Everybody who used to be called a data scientist or a statistician is now calling themselves the AI scientist. So uh, these techniques really contributed to to the hype. I think that uh, transfer learning, meta learning, GANs and reinforcement learning, so what we call uh, uh, next-gen AI, those techniques are uh, extremely important for aging research and most effective and most promising in aging research because uh, You can go from, let's say, one type of species from uh, mice to uh, other animals and to humans using transfer learning. Basically, you can train on uh, one type of species and retrain on another. Uh, For example, you never saw a uh, Japanese snow monkey before. And uh, I show it to you for the first time. And I... you can right away say if it if the monkey is uh, young, middle-aged, or old. So at least three categories you can recognize very, very quickly because you've trained uh, on a lot of humans and uh, there is some resemblance. So that would be transfer learning, an example of zero-shot sh- zero learning. So you basically take your prior knowledge and uh, extrapolate it to a new uh, object. If I show you 100 monkeys uh, and annotate them with age very well, you look at them, and after that, you can recognize uh, the age of monkeys almost as as well as in humans. 
And that is one-shot learning. So uh, learning from a very small data set while relying on, uh, on prior knowledge, on, the, on, on, on many examples that you've seen before. And um, that's uh, another kind of very powerful uh, technique in um, machine learning and transfer learning. And uh, with age prediction, uh, you can very, very quickly test some of those techniques like imaging data and then go to other data types that uh, we are not good at, like transcriptomic data or high-dimensional medical imaging data or um, microbiome, so bacteria in your gut, and uh, do transfer learning there. Same goes for uh, cross-species analysis. These techniques allow us to uh, learn on abundant data types and then relearn on something small. Meta-learning, also hugely important technique so, you know, it's learning to learn, so teaching algorithms to learn about the environment, because in many cases, there are so complex problems and complex uh, interactions uh, in, in aging that just uh, pure play machine learning techniques that uh, require you to generalize would not perform well. So you need to uh, have uh, multiple Lego blocks of uh, uh, generative sale networks, reinforcement learning, meta-learning, to really get uh, a more comprehensive picture. So I think that this next-gen AI techniques are most promising for aging research. We recently published uh, uh, an article, a review article in Aging Research Reviews uh, outlining our uh, uh, work in next-gen AI for um, aging research and for drug discovery. I will add the link to, to the show notes. You mentioned that a lot of ideas about the development of AI are not new. So where do you see what is the main driver uh, for the uptake and the fast development today? Is it simply the increased computer power? Did we get better with uh, uh, data collection, which is uh, the uh, primary need for any uh, analysis in AI? Yeah, so I think the current uh, hype and also current credible uh, progress in um, uh, AI was fueled by three major factors. So A, it's the availability of really big data. Suddenly, enough data sets became available for training. Uh, Then advances in uh, GPU computing and high-performance computing. So NVIDIA uh, really made a huge impact uh, on the world uh, of AI by... uh, developing uh, really high-performance graphics cards. And then uh, just the general development uh, in um, deep neural networks and the platform technologies for for working with deep neural networks uh, really took off. And uh, after deep neural networks started outperforming humans, uh, specifically in this ImageNet competition, uh, the level of hype around AI also allowed a lot of um, funding to come into this area. And uh, many people got excited. Uh, so right now we're talking and maybe, you know, 100,000 people are taking a TensorFlow course. And uh, some people in China are uh, developing a new generative visceral network for, uh, you know, novel chemistry synthesis. It's, it, it really took off, and it's a combination of those three factors. So data availability, high-performance computing, and better algorithms. 
How do you see the fear from AI? We mentioned a lot of techniques before, and some of them um, work in a way that we know the inputs, we know the outputs, but we don't really know how it came from one to the other. So we don't understand how the computer came to a specific decision. Well, I think every fear of AI is overrated. So at this point in time, uh, we shouldn't be significantly worried about the dangers of AI. We should be worried about the quality and uh, um, consistency of, uh, of, of AI, because you're, you're absolutely correct. In many cases, it's not as interpretable. But uh, even at this point in time, we can say that uh, if you're lacking diversity in your training sets, you are likely to be discriminating. And if it comes to uh, humans and, uh, let's say, humans of a specific race, uh, if you're lacking uh, the data sets from that race or that population group, uh, that population group is going to be discriminated. Uh, also, if there are examples uh, in um, a specific disease, for example, that are lacking in the training set, the quality of the uh, uh, of your AI is uh, uh, going to be you know, pretty low. So you need to you need to ensure that uh, uh, the data sets are diverse enough and include uh, uh, an adequate uh, number of uh, uh, key of rare cases. And uh, when it learns to generalize, uh, you uh, you've included pretty much everything there is uh, to 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 know about the disease or or any other task when. We're talking about GANs, for example, generative serial networks um, or a combination of GANs and reinforcement learning. So when you're doing kind of imagination plus strategy, yes, in many cases, uh, you will be lost in uh, uh, in translation when you will try to interpret uh, how a system you know, got to a specific conclusion. But there are multiple metrics and multiple tests you can use to uh, uh, to assess the quality and the uh, performance and consistency of your system. So as we get more and more familiar with those techniques and more people join the effort uh, and more groups uh, start competing on those metrics, you know, quality, con- consistency, uh, accuracy, the better the field becomes. And we get to work with a certain set of standards and quality control procedures uh, so I don't think that there are many dangers anymore. So those dangers have already been voiced. How does the aging research with AI look like? Because there's so many factors that uh, are influencing aging. Can you uh, perhaps explain a little bit on when you do the, the research? How do you decide what kind of factors are you going to be looking at? Where are you going to be looking for correlations? How is that changing? There are three major areas uh, where AI can be applied to aging research. So one is, as I've mentioned, uh, the construction of aging clocks. Guessing somebody's age with high accuracy using various data types. Second is uh, uh, generation of novel chemistry, for example. You really need to be able to very quickly design interventions to test your hypothesis. Uh, and third is um, generation of uh, new data by moving just one feature in your, uh, let's say, generative serial network uh, in time. So you move age 
and see how things change on various data types, be it uh, gene expression, be it genomic data, be it uh, uh, imaging data. Combined, those three uh, applications of AI and those three uh, areas present a very powerful uh, toolkit for aging research. So we can now, for example, when we work with gene expression data and uh, uh, signaling pathways, we can see how we can generate new data uh, using uh, just age as a generation condition and see what changes, how those pathways change, how uh, the levels of expression of uh, individual genes change as we try to generate older people. We can also now combine multiple data types with deep neural networks. So we can uh, train on uh, gene expression data and uh, blood tests, for example, and imaging data at the same time and see what features are you know, more important, what features are causal, uh, and what do we need to intervene in first. But as you've correctly described, aging is a hugely complex and multifactorial process. So you've got many, many, many processes uh, transpiring at the same time, and uh, most of them contribute to, uh, to decay and uh, functional decline. And many of them uh, have very intimate interplays. Think about it as uh, basically life in a city, right, where many, many, many elements uh, are uh, interconnected. And uh, understanding what is driving the aging process, and uh, it's very difficult. And when you're looking for interventions, that becomes even more difficult because uh, one way to intervene is, of course, to keep the homeostasis and uh, try to basically prevent the accumulation of damage uh, and try to identify ways to repair this damage very quickly. But once this damage uh, already happened and uh, it's on a massive scale, uh, you need to treat the symptoms and uh, find a way to, you know, rescue the the state to uh, to the level where you can uh, start repairing causal, uh, uh, start eliminating causal features. I think that this process is so complex that uh, it's easier to sometimes build things from scratch and uh, and replace them. So, for example replace the organs and the entire systems instead of uh, trying to understand how they break and uh, find ways to repair them. But if we want to understand them better, AI is the only way to go. Because the area is so complex and because there's so many factors influencing aging, uh, where do you see the, what's the latest connection between genes and healthy aging? You know, the, we, we used to like to say, or people still like to say that they have good genes and so they're optimistic about how long they will live because their grandparents perhaps lived long, etc. So, of course, genes uh, play a huge role in um uh, defining how long the individual is going to live. Some uh, individuals are predisposed to uh, longer life by uh, uh, having specific repair mechanisms uh, uh, intact. And uh, uh, sometimes we're just better at uh, fighting stress than uh, than the others. And that, that's genetically predefined. But... Uh, the fact of the matter is, life is very short for everybody. Whether you have good genes or bad, 
uh, you are very unlikely to cross the 120-year life uh, mark without other interventions. The current supercentenarians uh, are uh, uh, in their 119s, 118, 117. So nobody has crossed this uh, 122 and a half mark, for example, regardless of what genes they have. Do you think that will change uh, in time since uh, one of the big uh, research areas in aging and AI is also the programming of uh, stem cells and transforming the pluripotent cells into whichever other cells uh, that you need? So, of course, that's a hugely promising area. And uh, uh, gene therapy, uh, gene engineering, it's it's probably one of the very few areas that can give us uh, a very huge boost in longevity and help us uh, cross that 122 and a half uh, year mark. But but we definitely need to look at many areas working in concert to uh, take us over that limit. So naturally, regardless of uh, diet and exercise routines and uh, regardless of what kind of genes you have, the natural limit is 122 and a half. Nobody has crossed it yet. We'll see how, how things develop in time. Um, in, in Silico uh, has a clear pharmaceutical and a neuroceutical pipeline uh, listed on the website. Each compound is um, in a specific stage. So there's four stages. The generated profile scored a known target. Then there's the validation and simulation phase. Validation, internal and external. And uh, what I thought was interesting was how the numbers are changing. So, for example, for the molecules in oncology, there's the more than 32,000 in stage one and then 27 in stage four. Or if we look at the neurodegenerative disorder um, area, there's 1,700 uh, molecules in stage one and nine in stage four. So uh, the funnel is really uh, really narrows down till the end of the the research of a specific uh, molecule can you uh, tell us a little bit more about that so how long does it take for a compound to ga- get from one stage uh, to the other how long do you how much time do you take to to do a research on a specific um, potential that you identify we are essentially a biopharmaceutical company discovering novel molecules for uh, novel targets uh, implicated in uh, a wide uh, range of diseases. So that helps us uh, generate revenue and also stay on the edge of credible because, you know, in uh, aging and longevity, there's been uh, a lot of fraud and deceit over you know, many centuries. So we need to uh, stay as credible as possible and uh, be within the realm of traditional medicine. You can think about us as um, as a mining operation. So we uh, come to uh, the new field, let's say a spe- specific disease area in uh, in oncology. We come up with a lot of hypotheses about what kind of molecules can act on specific proteins that are implicated in uh, a specific type of cancer, uh, and um, in order to validate those hypotheses, we need to move forward. So we need to do more computational intensive uh, analysis and uh, do all kinds of prediction and uh, annotation. And then uh, usually when we end up uh, with uh, humans reviewing the, uh, the output, 
uh, of, uh, of, of our AI techniques, basically making some assessment of uh, how good or bad those predictions are for every one of those target uh, molecule associations, we have an experimental plan. So you need to test those hypotheses in uh, disease-relevant assays, uh, in some phenotypic assays, uh, where you will get some readout and uh, get some confidence, some more confidence that that particular disease target association is going to work in a human in a specific disease. So at every stage, the attrition rate is very, very high. Usually you uh, fail more often than you succeed. And also to move from one phase to another, usually it's quite expensive at the preclinical level. So once we start doing experiments, going from in silico, where it's mostly you know computing power and just time, uh, to experimental work where you know you need to build your assay, synthesize chemistry, hire experts to uh, uh, to perform the assay, that costs a lot more and it takes a lot longer than the AI experiment. And usually once you pass uh, those stages, the preclinical validation, you do clinical work. So there is only that many uh, molecules that you can take in experimental validation just because we are resource constrained. So even though we are reasonably well-funded, we cannot test every molecule and every target every time. So that's why you have much less targets and molecules in later stages, just because it's very expensive and it takes time. So to which extent does AI help you uh, identify molecules uh, that are probably not going to be successful in the clinical practice? So you prevent unnecessary cost with uh, clinical trials and uh, live testing? Uh, so AI helps us pretty much everywhere. In most cases, we are not disease experts. We are basically coming up with hypotheses without being the main experts in a specific cancer. And without AI, we wouldn't have never been able to collaborate with some of the top academic groups in the world just because we wouldn't have had this level of expertise. AI enables us to come up with hypotheses very, very quickly and uh, bring them to really top experts or to test them in, in, in various assays. The development of AI and everything that you do is highly dependent on the quality of data that you uh, can compile and then analyze. Um, how do you see the um, uh, rising privacy regulation and the data av availability? Is it going to become a, a problem in the future, in your opinion? Oh, yes, it's going to be a huge problem. Well, first of all, it's not only the quality of the data, it's also the quantity of the data. And sometimes quantity is more important than quality, at least when you're doing the training. So when you're doing the testing, you really need to have super high quality data. Um, and uh, privacy regulations uh, and um, data availability pose a substantial challenge to pretty much everybody in our field. and. Um, that makes uh, some of the companies and some of our competitors in Asia, for example, much, much more competitive because they can uh, very quickly access uh, enormous data sets that are not available uh, in the West. And at the same time, there is no substantial privacy regulation at this point of time. I personally 
think that if the data is being used for medical research purposes by credible institutions, it should be a requirement for pretty much everybody to uh, donate their data to medical research just because if they later want to get uh, healthcare uh, funded by the government or uh, uh, any kind of uh, healthcare benefits, uh, they need to take every step to improve the current uh, healthcare system and uh, to develop new methods to go from treatment to prevention and hopefully to complete elimination of disease to reduce the burden of disease on the economy. Because uh, currently, the world's economies are um, at the brink of collapse. Most of the uh, most of the countries accumulated a lot of debt, and most of this debt is to their own populations in the form of social security and healthcare benefits. And some of those healthcare benefits are completely unsustainable because uh, the population has been increasing, the life expectancy has been increasing, and uh, uh, the uh, social welfare programs have been uh, uh, improving. And uh, I think that AI is the only way to uh, improve uh, healthcare and to achieve sustainability and hopefully reduce or even eliminate some of the diseases. Uh, and it should be the fundamental law that uh, all the data about the individual uh, should be donated for medical purposes, at least until we manage to cure the diseases that are killing people. People think about privacy, but uh, they fail to think about uh, the death and suffering caused by by the diseases. So the real enemy is uh, are actually diseases, and uh, we need the data to to to, to provide uh, cures. How do you deal with the data regulation uh, around the world? You've got R&D centers in uh, six countries, including UK, uh, Korea, Russia, Hong Kong. Are you allowed to, for example, use the data uh, or gather the data in one country and then an analyze it in another one? How, how do the R&D centers connect and how do they differ? So usually that's the reason for having so, so many of those R&D centers is uh, we actually don't export data out of the country. So we usually process it within the country. And sometimes we actually do it at the partner's premises. So we do not export data outside the premises. Most of the time we work with anonymized data. It's not connected to the individual providing the data. 80% of the time, probably, we use uh, publicly available data, so something that is already deposited and available online. So we process it as kind of the low-hanging fruit, and then we retrain those models trained on publicly available data on uh, better data, data sets uh, obtained from uh, other sources. And when you are working with chemistry data, for example, I mean, chemistry data is not uh, something that needs to be protected from the uh, privacy perspective. So a lot of our work is done on chemistry maybe 60% of what we do is in the chemistry domain. Uh, but, but if you are looking at uh, individual uh, uh, patient data, first of all, we try not to touch it. Second, if we touch it, uh, we do it at the uh, medical partner uh, premises 
and we do not export it from the premises. Uh, one thing that just got me thinking when uh, considering that you're working in different countries is also the influence of um, an individual's origin or race to uh, how he will respond on a, to a specific drug. Um, is it, uh, how does that influence your research? So, for example, if you're looking at biomarkers in the Asian population, I'm assuming that can't easily be transferred to the Caucasian population. Uh, so you're right. Uh, in uh, many cases, uh, biomarkers are very population-specific, and uh, it is not possible to transfer very, very easily from one uh, population to another. Uh, you need to retrain. Uh, one very easy exercise uh, to see uh, if the biomarker is population-specific is actually age prediction. So we recently published an article where we took uh, uh, a large number of um, uh, blood tests from uh, uh, various sources in uh, Korea, in Canada, and in Eastern Europe, and uh, uh, built predictors of age within every one of those populations, and then tested one population on the deep neural network trained on another population to see if the accuracy can be the same uh, and uh, if the features are the same and uh, if the individuals within that other within the test population look uh, older or younger than the individuals in the uh, um, population that was used to uh, train the deep neural net. And we found very, very interesting, peculiar findings. We saw that uh, Koreans, when uh, you test uh, the Korean population on a deep neural network trained on uh, Canadian uh, data, uh, of course, you get higher error rate, but also they look younger, significantly younger than, uh, than Canadians. Uh, and that's on blood tests. So that gives you a signal that this particular marker is population specific and there is something there making them look younger. If you test the Eastern Europeans on the deep neural net uh, trained on uh, Canadians, they look older. And uh, that's uh, and the error rate is even higher. So there is something there, and you can see how different populations are different from each other you know, in predicted age. When you are doing this on cancer, so in cancer biology and in other uh, um, areas and other disease areas, you're likely to see very similar problems and challenges. So one is not going to be the same as the other. And uh, it's very important to train on all of them together. We actually did train a common predictor of age on three of those populations. And uh, that uh, common predictor of age uh, works very, very well in all populations. In the last year or maybe a year and a half ago, uh, some companies got a lot of attention by offering uh, transfusion from younger people to the older people as um, uh, an anti-aging technique or rejuvenating technique. What do you think about that? Uh, so I think that's uh, highly experimental and uh, there is no concrete proof that uh, these technologies work. So I know that there are some clinical trials in the, in this area. I think that before those interventions could be put on the market, there needs to be much more validation. And uh, we shouldn't be transfusing the entire, uh, you know, either blood or plasma or uh, uh, even uh, thinking about the metabolites or specific elements from this plasma. 
uh, we need to first isolate the factors that are very likely to have a rejuvenative effect and then test those instead of you know doing bulk plasma or or, or blood transfusions to me it, it seems and sounds a little bit barbaric but some people there's no choice so you know for alzheimer's patients uh, i would see the value in you know doing this uh, sooner rather than later because they just don't have the time to wait Alzheimer's disease is a terrible disease. Dementia area as such is a very broad field as well. And um, what has been kind of disappointing uh, in the last years or yeah, in the last 10 years was basically the hypothesis on how to uh, treat Alzheimer's. So there was um, this hypothesis that uh, amyloid plaques are building up in the brain and that's what causes Alzheimer's. But then when none of the drugs... Uh, that the pharma produced to, to target the amyloid plaques weren't very successful. Um, the research kind of halted and everybody started thinking if maybe the, that hypothesis wasn't uh, the right one. Uh, do you know what, what's the latest on the Alzheimer's uh, research scale? What are the, the latest thinkings or discoveries? So we do not understand Alzheimer's at this point. It's one of the very poorly understood and uh, uh, areas, and it's a clear unmet medical need. So the uh, amyloid hypothesis did not prove itself to be uh, valid in the context of developing effective interventions uh, so far. There are many, many others. At this point of time, the pharmaceutical companies are cutting down on uh, Alzheimer's and the in general CNS research just because of the high number of failures in the past uh, uh, in the Alzheimer's space. It's a hugely lucrative area, but at this point of time, uh, the disease is so poorly understood that it's, uh, it's not worthwhile taking molecules into clinical trials without uh, a better understanding of, of, of the nature of the disease, of uh, heterogeneity and uh, uh, you know, cause and effect uh, relationships. Because... Uh, of course, the plagues are there. That's uh, irrefutable. Uh, what do we need to target in order to prevent Alzheimer's? At this point of time, we do not know. We need to find out uh, more about you know, what kind of biomarkers we can measure and uh, how do we diagnose it early? When do we intervene? How do we intervene? So all that is uh, currently up for grabs. We are doing some work in this area. Uh, primarily in the biomarker space. But um, I think there are many other low-hanging fruits to, to be grabbed uh, through you know, AI and uh, other forms of research uh, before we can go into CNS. So that's yeah. why we do so much work in, in, in cancer, because uh, that's where you can very quickly validate your hypothesis. In, in the brain, it's very, very difficult because... Uh, you cannot really get access to live tissue or do a biopsy. I have uh, one question left for you for today, and that's uh, what's your blood pr pressure like? Because uh, pulse pressure and systolic blood pressure are biomarkers that uh, show the strongest positive correlation with chronological age for both genders. And uh, there's an old saying that if you have a low blood pressure, you're going to live long. However, your life is probably going to be a little bit boring because you're going to be sleepy and tired most of the time. 
Well, I kind of disagree on this blood pressure hypothesis on the you know correlation with your biological age. Uh, but yeah, my blood pressure is usually uh, basically 70 to on, on 120. Uh, so within that range, uh, it's usually very good. But my many other markers uh, that are more predictive of your biological age uh, uh, since I travel a lot and I do not necessarily pursue a very healthy lifestyle, uh, so I do look older than my chronological age. So what kind of uh, preventive measures are you taking to um, uh, contribute to, to healthy aging based on how much knowledge you have on what are the factors that are influencing this process? So I personally do not really engage in um, uh, preventative uh, kind of geroscience because uh, at this point of time I'm still very optimistic about the future and I'm still uh, in the age range which uh, which should be very optimistic. I do not uh, necessarily exercise as much or uh, follow a specific diet. Uh, I do take NAD plus precursors, so nicotinamide rebozide and uh, nicotinamide mononucleotide. That's by the way not a recommendation, just a comment. I do take a specific regimen of metformin uh, and also take it uh, in a very specific time of day and in a very specific dose. I do take um, several vitamins uh, just to ensure that, uh, you know, there is no... Uh, Deficiencies? Yeah, so I, I'm not deficient on anything. And uh, that's, uh, that's basically it. So, of course, aspirin and uh, beta blockers and... Uh, um, ACE inhibitors uh, and statins uh, can be used from time to time, but uh, I don't have a clear regimen for those. This was the 36th episode of Faces of Digital Health. Do check the links in the show notes. They include some latest research papers on aging and AI, co-authored by Alex. They're also listed on the Faces of Digital Health blog, which you can find on Medium. Stay tuned.